When I was a young Christian just learning how to follow Jesus and growing in my faith, one of the first ways I served in ministry was with a a youth group. It was at the Nazarene Church in Fortuna. And so at the age of 19, I was learning how to play guitar, so they had me helping lead music, and I would kind of help with discussions with the with the high school kids and the junior high kids, and, and I, I got to preach my first sermon when I was 19 at this youth group, and it was probably the most boring sermon ever, uh, and it was out of Hebrews 13. I was trying to connect like the Old Testament sacrifices with Jesus, and and it made a lot of sense to me. And I remember uh, a friend of mine. He came up to me afterwards, and he said it was really good uh, content, but the delivery was a little rough. Uh, well, that's the first one. Come on, give it. <laughs> I took a shot, uh, and so the the youth pastor that I served under. In that youth group, he was he was pretty much the same age as me. He might have been younger than me, actually, and and he was he was really young, but he was this really dynamic leader, dynamic speaker. So I learned a lot from this from this leader, and he just seemed like a really capable person, uh, and he had a lot of responsibility. He was carrying a lot of weight, and he just seemed to do a really good job with it, and I really admired him and respected him, and, and that's why I was so surprised when he called me one night in tears, sobbing, and, and talking to me about how inadequate he felt as, as a leader and how weak he felt that he just felt like he was a failure and that he, was, uh, that he wasn't going to be able to continue, and I remember how surprised I felt in that moment of just learning that someone I respected felt like that and, and how, how that was a really strange feeling and, and a really strange uh, moment for me. And, and my question was, how could someone who, who seemed like such a strong leader, how could they sound so vulnerable and, and so unsure of themselves could even feel like that. I didn't think you could feel like that if you were a strong leader. And, and now recognizing after 20 years of ministry in my own life that, that I actually really identify with the confession of, of my friend because I've experienced those same feelings and I've expressed them to others uh, many times over over the years. But but here's the amazing thing about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the power is not in the messenger. The power is not in the messenger. The power is not in the way that the message is communicated. Uh, the power of preaching or telling others about Jesus, sharing our faith, it's not measured in the amount of preparation we put into it or the effectiveness of the illustrations or how charismatic uh, the person who's sharing that might be or how practical it applies to different circumstances in in people's lives and and all those things are important and any any person who's trying to communicate the good news of Jesus they should we should work hard to to communicate our faith powerfully and effectively but but the power of the good news of Jesus is the message itself not the messenger 
not the way it's presented, the message itself, the simple truth that God sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, to die on a cross for our sins, and to be raised from death on the third day. It's, it's the announcement, the proclamation that this message is true. That is the power of God. And it's this confidence, it's this conviction that's driving the Apostle Paul as he writes this New Testament letter that we have been studying called 1 Corinthians. It's this letter that he writes to this young Christian community. They're just coming into faith in Jesus and learning how to, how to follow Jesus, how to walk with him, how to walk with one another in Christian community. And this Christian community has been birthed by God in the middle of a Roman city that is consumed with many of the same things that we are consumed with today, with ambition and success and money and power and sex and pleasure all these things surrounding them. And in, in the middle of all that, we see Paul, as he writes this letter, he pushes all his chips in on the gospel and says, this is the power of God, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. As we saw last week, Paul said, my whole reason in coming to you in the city of Corinth was to, he said in verse 17, to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And in the verses that follow this, the verses we'll look at today, Paul explains how the Christian community in Corinth, how, how they can guard against emptying the cross of its power. We face the same temptation today to strip the Christian faith of its true power in order to make it more appealing or more acceptable in our culture that that continues to reject the message of the cross. Another danger that we face is our own feelings of inadequacy and weakness that I just talked about with my friend in in my own life, that feeling that God could never use us to do his work because of flaws and failings in us. And still yet, we face the danger of pride, that when we do see God use us and he moves powerfully through us to have an effect on someone else's life, we can deceive ourselves that it was our own ability, it was our own work that's having this effect on other people. And then we can be tempted to build our own reputation, to build our own platform, to magnify our own name. How do we guard against these dangers? The answer is the same for for these three dangers, the same for the church in Corinth, the same as it is for us today, by keeping the cross of Jesus Christ as the center of, as the focus of our faith. And Paul shows us this by pointing to, first, the word of the cross, second, the way of the cross, and third, the witness of the cross. So let's read this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 18 all the way into chapter 2, verse 5 of chapter 2. So let's begin. 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 1, beginning of verse 18 on page 952 in your Bibles. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your callings, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, it is a, it is a strange thing to, to get up and preach about the very thing that is being talked about in, in this passage of Scripture, in your word, and I, I am in danger of many of the same things that people in Corinth were in danger of, of trying to use my own wisdom and my own ability. And I pray that you would guard me against using my own wisdom, that I would preach Christ crucified today, and that in my own weakness and in my own inability, you would be glorified, Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. We need nothing else today. So bring us to him, Father, we pray. And with the Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you be demonstrating the power of Jesus today through your word and in our hearts that we would believe and trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As we've seen in the introduction and in the opening passages of this letter, the church community in Corinth, they're struggling 
mightily <laughs> to walk in the new identity that they've been given in Jesus. They've been called as his holy, set-apart people. They've been made a new creation, but they're struggling. How do we do this? How do we live in it? And in their identity crisis that they're having, feeling the tension of who they've now become in Jesus and who they once were before, they're, they're feeling this pull back into their old way of thinking, the way that they lived and believed before Jesus called them into his family. And they've begun to live in ways that are threatening their unity, their cohesiveness as a community of Jesus. And, and one of the ways that we see this happening is that there are factions that have formed within this church community, that, that essentially each faction is, they're picking a leader in the early church, people like Paul or Apollos or Peter, uh, and and they're, they're aligning themselves with, with one of these leaders and sort of picking a team saying, I'm on team Paul, I'm on team Peter, I'm on team Apollos. And just like the culture of Corinth, the city that they live in, they're looking for their identity in the leader that they follow, which teacher they align themselves with, which philosophy was most impressive or what style of speaking was most powerful. And this was going on all over the Greco-Roman Empire uh, during this time period, and it was happening in Corinth, that, that your, your identity was connected to the teacher or the school of philosophy that you, you connected yourself with. And it's here that Paul reminds them, the whole reason that you're following Jesus is not because of how good the presentation was or how polished a public speaker he was. No, he says, remember, the message I taught you is the word of the cross. And he goes on to say that all wisdom, all power, the things that, that the Corinthians are craving, they ultimately lead back to the cross of Jesus. And this wording is very important for us to see. The words wisdom and power along with the opposites of foolishness and weakness, they're used by Paul about 20 times just in this short section here. So it's obviously something that Paul is doing very intentionally. He's doing this to touch a nerve, uh, to point something out. He's saying these issues of of your view, your longing for wisdom and power, they're at the heart of all the other issues that he's going to address throughout this letter that he writes to this church community. Why, why is this? Because in this church and in this city, this whole region, the, the idea of seeking and attaining what they called wisdom was a means of achieving power. Uh, achieving influence. So in the city of Corinth, power and status and position in the community, how you were recognized and what people thought of you, it was not something that you inherited, right? In, uh, in, like in the U.S., the United States, um, a lot of times we, we see figures and we don't know why they are well-known. And it's 
sometimes because their parents or their grandparents were famous. And so we actually have people who are famous for doing nothing except being famous. Uh, but, but in the city of Corinth, the way that people gained status and identity was through accumulating wisdom and being recognized for the way that they accumulated that wisdom, how they communicated. It was something very, very powerful in, in that uh, in that culture, and and we we could think about it in the same way that many of us use social media. That that the amount of followers and the amount of likes and the amount of engagement that you have uh, can actually come. You could be called an influencer, uh, and and you you can get your meaning and your identity from from that status that you have gained through those who are following you. In the same way, the Corinthians they looked. For they were seeking wisdom through different philosophies and through different teachers. Now, now here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. The message of Jesus is antithetical to, to both of those things, whether we're seeking wisdom or whether we're seeking identity or status through anything other than him. Because Paul says in verse 18, uh, the word, the message of the cross is, is the power of God. Not wisdom, not philosophy, not teaching. It's, it's the message, the word of the cross. Now we need to dwell here a little bit because we tend to forget, we, we tend to forget this because we're so far removed from, from this time period. But, but in the first century, execution by crucifixion was an extremely offensive subject in the Greco-Roman culture. It was a disgusting and humiliating way for a person to die. It was reserved for the worst and the lowest forms of criminals. A Roman citizen was not allowed to be crucified because it was so undignified and so disrespectful to the humanity of a person that a Roman citizen was not allowed to be crucified. In, in the upper crust of Greco-Roman society, people would, were not even supposed to talk about it, to even use the word or to hint at it. To die by crucifixion was to be stripped of all your dignity, to make sure that people knew that you had been utterly forsaken, that you had been cast aside. And yet Paul says, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, for him to die on a cross is the power of God in full and complete display. And it's this message, this word, this offense that is absolute foolishness to the human mind, to the concept of of human wisdom. How can this disgusting act, how can a person who's been subject to this be the power and the wisdom of God? How can this humiliating loss be the way to salvation? How can it be the way to victory? Now, if, if what you are looking for is a sophisticated philosophical ideology, the cross seems like a, a child's drawing on the refrigerator, right? It's, 
It's nice to look at, but no one takes it to college and examines it and studies it and looks for a deeper meaning. It's quaint, it's nice, but it's not worth considering on a deeper level. And this has nothing to do with my own children's drawings that are on our refrigerator. I love them very much. I'm trying to trying to point us to the intellectual equivalent where, where we would say that it's not advanced, it's not something that we're going we're gonna to study for years and years to come. It's plain and childish. And yet the cross is God's wisdom, God's power, God's plan. In the cross, God is making it plain that we don't think our way to him. We don't debate our way into his presence. We don't attain standing with him on the basis of our intellect or our accumulated human wisdom. In the cross, God shows the foolishness of every human effort to impress or gain favor with. This message is offensive. Just as much as it was in the first century, it's offensive today. It's offensive to everyone in any culture at any time. Paul says that for the Jewish people, the idea of God's Messiah, who they'd been waiting for for centuries, for for God's promised rescuer to become weak, to become humiliated on a cross that meant he was cursed by God, it was a stumbling block something that they tripped over. They were looking for a strong, conquering king who would restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glories. Similar to them, to non-Jews or to Greeks or Gentiles, different wording and different translations, the message of a God who would be crucified was something weak, it was something simple, it was something that was not very compelling in the pantheon of gods for a God's son to become weak and humiliated and to die was not impressive, not even worth considering. Stephen Um, who's a pastor in Boston, he says, from the perspective of human power grasping, God's power can be called nothing other than weakness. There's no power in being crucified. That is the ultimate display of weakness, vulnerability, and frailty. God's weak power is a declaration of man's ultimate powerlessness as it relates to his relationship with God. Power in God's sense, is giving up one's own power. And if power is the ultimate cultural value, then this, the word of the cross, is nothing short of a scandal. We face the same challenge today as the church in Corinth. You and I, we struggle with the reality of the word of the cross and what it means for us with the message of Jesus because the cross is really this daily confrontation that we could not save ourselves, that we couldn't perform, we didn't do what we were supposed to, and that we had to be rescued from sinful rebellion against God. I would prefer a way to God that I learn. You would prefer a way to God, something that you could attain through discipline, 
through, through hard work. Something that, that you and I could point at and say, look what I have done. Grace is offensive and it's foolish to all of us. So, so here's some questions you can ask yourself just to consider. What is the power that you trust in? Is it what Jesus has done for you on the cross or is it what you have done for yourself? What provides meaning for your life? What moments or acts do you feel bring ultimate significance to you? How will you be saved? If your answer is anything other than the cross of Jesus, Paul says, God says to you, you're in danger of destruction, of perishing, he says in verse 18. And this message is the power and the wisdom of God, the word of the cross. Next, the Apostle Paul points to the way of the cross. By calling the church community in Corinth, he says, look at yourselves, consider yourselves, look in the mirror. He says, you yourselves, you're a display of the wisdom and the power of God. And he's reminding them of something that we all need to hear every once in a while. You are not that impressive, he says. Look at you, consider yourselves not many of you were something that people would admire or, or take a second look at. By human standards, he says, you're not wise, you're not powerful, you're not influential, you're not admired, you're not respected. He says, essentially, you're, for the most part, the church in Corinth, you're just a bunch of nobodies. So why are you, why are you trying to, to gain something? that you can't win that way. It's not going to come to you. You're, you're not going to win that way. He says, according to your own standards, there's no reason, there's no compelling reason why God would want you. But, he says, God does want you. God sovereignly chose you, called you into his family. And Paul says, because he's called you, because He's chosen you. You can stop measuring yourself by any other standard. You can stop trying to, to meet these other requirements that your culture and your society is saying that you have to, have to meet. And, and think about this. Look, if you, if you know the stories of the Old Testament, just reflect back in the Old Testament with me really quick because I think this is the way of God. This is the wisdom and power of God all the way through the Bible. Think about the lives and the stories of people like Abraham. Who was Abraham? He was a nobody that God called Abram. I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to make a covenant to you. Not because of something you did to earn this place. He just calls him. He chooses him. Moses, a baby discarded like all the other babies in Egypt and slavery. He's a nobody who God uses. Gideon, a coward. Ruth, not even a, a Jewish woman. Hannah, a barren woman. 
David, the, the forgotten brother, not even significant enough to, to have standing in line when all the other brothers are there. Elijah, Isaiah, Esther, none of these people were impressive or admired before God called them, before God chose them. They were overlooked. They were cast aside. They were despised. They were ignored. They were mocked. They were disrespected. They were forgotten and devalued by everyone but God. God loved each one of them and called them and chose them into his family, into his story, and all of them were used mightily by God. Each one of these nobodies was pointing the way to somebody, to Jesus. All of them were preparing us today for the way of the cross. Here's another question to consider. How do you think about yourself? What are the kinds of things that you think about yourself? Do you wish that you could be a better person so that God could use you more powerfully, more effectively? Do you wish that you hadn't made some of the mistakes in your life, that you could go back and rewrite some chapters in order uh, to be a a better witness for Jesus, that, that people could look at your life without those things there? Do you sometimes wonder what your life would be like if, if you hadn't been overlooked or forgotten or mistreated in some way. If some opportunity had come to you at the right moment. Here's, here's something I want you to hear. God doesn't take any pleasure in your pain and the things that you've experienced in your life that have been difficult but the pain of the path that you have walked, it does not disqualify you from God's love or from his purpose and plan in your life. Your pain, your experiences, even your own sin, they do not disqualify you from God's love or from God's work. They don't make you ineligible for living in the way of the cross. You are welcomed in. God is calling you in, beckoning you, inviting you. Find your place in Jesus. In Jesus, Paul teaches us, God chose what is low and despised and forgotten in the world. He chose you. He called you. And in Jesus, you receive something that no one and nothing else can give you. Look at what Paul says in verse 30. Because of God, because of God's choice of you, you are in, you're in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means you are united with Jesus Literally, it means you are joined closely together with him. Because of God's choice, you are joined closely together with Christ Jesus, who became, who entered this condition for you. Wisdom from God, righteousness, 
sanctification, and redemption. Now those three words, they're very Christian theological words that we've heard a bunch of times. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Uh, and and we, could, we could spend some time on that, but, but what I really want to say is that what, what, we're, what we receive in Jesus is, is nothing we can get from, from any other place or any other person or any other religion or ideology. There's no wisdom or philosophy other than the cross of Jesus that makes us right with God. That's where our righteousness comes from, being joined together closely with Jesus. There's no wisdom or philosophy or any other religion other than the cross that is making you holy, transforming you into a good and pure person. There's no power, there's no wisdom, there's no philosophy in all the world that can redeem you, that can pay the penalty for your sin and set you loose into a life of freedom and victory. Only Jesus can do that. And what does this lead to? Paul says, it doesn't lead to any boasting in your own accomplishments. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a life of worship. It's a life of boasting in Jesus. People boast all the time about the things that they're learning from, right? How many times have you done this or you've heard it from somebody else? You gotta listen to this podcast that I listen to, right? You gotta watch this TED Talk. It'll change your life. It'll transform you, right? You gotta, you gotta read this book. You gotta hear this talk from someone. You gotta, you gotta listen to the teachings of this person, Paul says, only Jesus in the way of the cross, we boast only in him. Not in our own ability, not in our own influence, not in our own willpower or our own accomplishments. We boast in Jesus because he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gave himself on the cross for us. This is our boast. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our delight, the way of the cross. So Paul's talked so far with us about the word of the cross, the message of Jesus, that God's power and wisdom is most clearly displayed in a way that appears weak and insignificant on the cross, and that the way of the cross, God chooses weak and insignificant people to powerfully display his power, his wisdom, his way of things. So finally, let's look at the witness of the cross. And here, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul, he's pointed at the Corinthians and said, look at yourselves. And then he says, now look at me. Look at my life. He says, look at the way that I came to you in the first place. And he knew what the Corinthians were expecting when he first came into town. Whenever a new teacher would come into the city of Corinth to talk about some new idea, some new philosophy, uh, that, that the people there were looking for a certain kind of presentation, for it to be polished, for it to be charismatic, for this person to have a force of personality, something impressive, something dignified, something you'd want to connect yourself with 
to impress other people and build your status. Today, we watch TED Talks, right? <laughs> uh, we, what is a TED Talk? As an expert giving a concise and powerful presentation of their ideas. Another word for that could be a gospel. Good news, right? Here are some titles of the top 25 most popular TED Talks. What makes a good life? How great leaders inspire action. How to talk so people listen. The happy secret to better work. How to make stress your friend. Ten things you didn't know about orgasm. Your elusive creative genius. Some of these TED Talks have over 50 million views. And that's just on their own website. That's not including YouTube or any other streaming site. Why? Why are we so drawn to these things? Because they are powerful. They're exciting. They're dramatic presentations of core ideas about who we are, who we want to become, and what brings significance and meaning to our lives. So whether it's a TED Talk that you watched yesterday or it's people in first century Corinth, we are all looking for the same thing. And Paul knows this. So when he comes into the city of Corinth, when he begins to speak there in public, doesn't know anybody. He's just another guy talking about what he believes in. When he begins to speak of the way of Jesus, what method did he use? Verse 1, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now something to know about Paul is that he was extremely educated, extremely intelligent. He could hold his own in a debate just fine. If you know about the chronology of his life and his ministry, you remember that just before Paul comes to the city of Corinth, he has been in the city of Athens, which is like the philosophical center of debate and instruction, and that's where people went to learn ideas. And Paul had just been in the city of Athens where he had skillfully engaged with the top philosophical minds of that time period. So we need to remember, Paul is not some hick who dropped out of high school and has spelling errors on his resume. He's very intelligent. He's able to do what the Corinthians are looking for, but he doesn't. Why? He says in verse 2, I decided, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wouldn't lean on his own ability. He did not depend on his own education to teach people about Jesus. Instead, he says, in order to be an effective witness of of the way of Jesus, of the word of the cross, he humbled himself. Verse 3, I was with you. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but instead in the demonstration of the Spirit of God and of power, of God's power. 
if, if you and I, if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, it will require us to humble ourselves. Our reputation might take a hit. People might think of us a little bit differently than we would prefer to. We, we will not impress anyone. And, and in that experience of, of humbling ourselves, I think we need to recognize we will experience pain and we will experience moments of embarrassment and we'll be rejected by certain people because the, the cross, as we've said, it's offensive, right? The message of Jesus is offensive on its own. We don't need to add anything to it to make it offensive, and, and when I feel pain, when I feel rejection, when I can tell somebody is like, okay, my desire is to, to overcompensate, right? I need to show this person who I really am, that I'm not stupid, that I'm not foolish, right? I want to I mend that. And so we lean on our own power and our own ability, our own personality. But if we want to be a witness of the cross, if we want to show people truly the way of Jesus, we have to lay down those things and submit all of our lives to Jesus. But here's the power of the gospel. It's here in that surrender that God most powerfully displays who he is. Not who we are, but who he is. It's a demonstration of the spirit of God in us so that people don't, see us so much as they see the one who has called us and is calling them. And Paul finishes in verse five. So he says, I did all these things so that your faith wouldn't be in the wisdom of men. Your faith wouldn't be in me or Peter or Apollos or any other teacher, but that your faith would rest, would find its home in the power of God, in the way and the word of the cross. I started by talking about my friend who called me and talked about his feelings of inadequacy and failure. And I, I didn't know what to say to him in that moment. And I read him the end of chapter one in First Corinthians. And I said, all I know is, is that that God uses people who are exactly like what you're talking about. So I wish that I could tell you that, I mean, I could tell you you're not a failure. I could tell you you're not weak. I could tell you all the things that I've learned from you. But, but what he really needed to hear and what we need to hear today is that, that weakness, that inability, that, that sense of failure in us that doesn't exclude us from God's family or from him using us, that's actually the entry point. And so that's our invitation today, is to not be afraid of that, but instead to embrace the way of Jesus by submitting ourselves and, and giving ourselves in surrender to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you have opened our hearts to see our great need our great weakness, our own inability to save ourselves, to, uh, to, to find our way to you, 
in any other way than through the cross. I pray that there would be conviction in our hearts that you would show us the places where we have strayed from the beauty of the gospel, where we have tried to exalt ourselves or to make ourselves something that we are not, that you would give us humility and repentance and that in our repentance we would see your way, Jesus, and we would walk again with you in faith and belief, not in our own ability, but in what you've done for us, Jesus. I pray that you would lead us into being faithful witnesses of the cross, that through our lives we could be this incredible display of your power, and that you would give us grace to be humble you would give us comfort when we are rejected and that you would give us a resolve to do this day by day, moment by moment so that Jesus would be seen and known and loved. We ask it in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.